So to our, our next guest, John Craves, who regularly reduces me to tears um, with his digested beats, which is a staple of The Guardian that I'm sure you all know. Tonight, he's going to give us a new digested beat, which only I have read, which makes me special. Um, it's very good. You will enjoy it. And then we're going to be talking about his memoir, Vertigo, One Football Fan's Fear of Success. And I should add that John, um, John wrote a book about football ostensibly, which meant that I had to go into the sports section of my local Waterstones, which is a place I've never been before. Um, I felt dirty afterwards. But anyway, more about that. It's not really about football, it's about him. And he's a very interesting man. Please welcome him now. I'm going to start with a reading. It's actually not true that Damien is the only person who's read this. Um, <laughs> because um, my good friend John Sutherland has also read it. And this is... I'm, I'm going to read Jane Austen's Persuasion. Um, it, because John and I are actually planning a book of Austen lit crit, sort of offbeat lit crit together. And... Um, so this is Persuasion. Um, for those of you who know the book, I apologize in advance. For those who don't, it goes something like this. Vanity was the beginning and end of Sir Walter Elliot's character. In his younger days, he had been a remarkably fine-looking man, and even at 54, he was still handsome, a blessing he took with the utmost seriousness. His wife had sensibly died some 13 years earlier, having failed to provide him with an heir to his baronetcy, and instead leaving him with three daughters. The eldest, Elizabeth, had inherited her father's characteristics and at 29 was still as beautiful as she was airheaded, and had reasonable expectations of marrying suitably, while the youngest daughter, Mary, was there is no kinder way of saying this, a bit of a dog. <laughs> and while not disgracing the family, had hardly advanced its prospects by marrying Mr. Charles Musgrove, a man who would have been considered a bumpkin were he not a minor member of the country gentry. The middle daughter, Anne, how often it is that the middle child goes unregarded, was two years younger than Elizabeth and had once been pretty but had now lost her bloom which is not to say that she was hideously unattractive, but that a gentleman would almost certainly only show interest in her if he was a bit desperate. <laughs> which is to say, she was heading for the shelf. Yet marriage was not Anne's immediate concern. Her father, being a baronet, had been obliged to maintain a certain standard of living at Kellynch Hall, one that he could no longer afford, and changes needed to be made to the family circumstances. Unable to bear the disgrace of moderating his expenditure, Sir Walter had been prevailed upon to rent Kellynch to Admiral Croft, a man almost worthy of living in a house belonging to a baronet, and had decided to take a had townhouse in Bath, a most fashionable location where Elizabeth might find herself a suitable husband, having unaccountably been jilted by Sir Walter's heir presumptive, William Walter Elliot, some years previously and thereby missed out on the opportunity to breed further generations of congenital idiots. <laughs> Upon consultation with Lady Russell, 
a noblewoman of whom many among the finest in society were surprised had not become the second Lady Elliot upon the demise of the first, had persuaded Anne to stay with her sister Mary at Upper Cross, just seven miles from Kellynch, rather than travel to Bath. This was not Lady Russell's first persuasion, for some years earlier, when there'd been an understanding between Anne and a young sea captain, Frederick Wentworth, she had persuaded Anne to inform Captain Ed Wentworth that his attentions were no longer desirable, as he didn't have enough cash to make up for his lack of breeding. Despite retaining the deepest of feelings for Captain Wentworth, Anne had allowed herself to be persuaded, both because she had great respect for Lady Russell's judgment, Lady Russell having become her closest confidant, and because she was a total doormat. Anne was not in the slightest distressed by her father and sister's decision to move to Bath without her, as it freed her from the trivia of their preoccupations and left her centre stage for the middle section of the novel. <laughs> she was slightly more perturbed to discover that, in the unwelcome coincidences so often to be found in Miss Austen's novels, that Admiral Cross's brother-in-law should be none other than Captain Wentworth, who had returned from the Napoleon Wars in possession of a £20,000 fortune and was therefore also in want of a wife. I suppose I find myself in yet another of these early 19th century will-they-won't-they they romances, Anne said to herself, for, for she was not without insight, despite being without bloom. And I dare say that in time Captain Wentworth and I shall be wed, for such is the convention of the genre. <laughs> But for now, I shall do my best to look distressed with how little favour Captain Wentworth regards me, while keeping that distress within the respectable confines expected of a wallflower. I'm not that bothered who I shall wed as long as I am wed soon, Captain Wentworth announced, the bulge in his trousers getting bigger by the day. His prolonged absence at war having wrought a certain frustration in his nether regions. Mr Musgrove's sisters the only two available but equally simple, Henrietta and Louisa, simpered hopefully as Captain Wentworth tried to inject some tension in the narrative by courting them both equally. <laughs> Yet choices had to be made. And fortunately, the arrival on the scene from nowhere in particular of the Reverend Charles Hayter, an earnest and unprepossessing curate to whom Henrietta remembered she had promised herself, rather forced Captain Wentworth's hand the dreary vicar being less than impressed by the attentions being paid to his squeeze, and our hero in possession of a fortune's eye turned towards Louisa. Anne observed all this with fortitude. A fortitude she now wished she had displayed some eight years earlier, when she had allowed herself to be persuaded by Lady Russell, as the desire for Captain Wentworth remained undimmed. There were moments when she was tempted to convey the depth of her feeling for him by suggestively adjusting the tie of her bonnet. And yet such brazenness would have been unseemly from a woman on whom Valium would be wasted. <laughs> and, and so she chose to smile sweetly and maintain an irritating subservient stoicism. <laughs> Having noticed that the plot had rather ground to a halt, Captain Wentworth declared they were all to travel to Lyme Regis to visit his old friend Captain Hartville, who had been gravely injured during the war. Though it pained Anne greatly to see Captain Wentworth so clearly entranced by Louisa's charms, she was gracious enough to acknowledge that Louisa's charms were indeed manifold, and that she ought to try to rejoice in their happiness. 
Moreover, Anne's own charms did not go entirely unnoticed, if not by the man whose attention she most sought. While advising a Captain Benwick, whose fiancée, the sister of Captain Harville, had also had the misfortune to croak prematurely, on the best poetry to read while grieving during a morning perambulation around the parlour, an unknown gentleman stopped to engage her in conversation. Was that not our long-lost cousin William Elliot? Mary asked once the encounter had drawn to a close. Upon my word, I do declare he was most taken with you, Sister Anne. Oh, fie, it cannot have been him, because that would surely be too much of a coincidence, Anne replied. <laughs> Upon being assured that it was indeed Cousin William, Anne declared it was of no matter, and that he couldn't have been attracted to her, because she had indeed lost her bloom. And that's an end to it, she said. Let us continue our walk. Having reached the cob, Louisa tripped over a speck of dirt and fell headlong to the ground. <laughs> what is to be done, cried Captain Wentworth. Anne ran to the foreground and took Louisa in her arms. She has had a major injury, she said, and must stay in Lyme Regis for at least three months to recover. <laughs> Having thus spake, Anne fell silent though not before noticing that Captain Wentworth had himself given her a most curious look, a look that a less discerning person might perceive of as desire, yet she knew in her heart that she could expect no such favour, and so contented herself with the thought that yet again she had been little Miss Perfect. Very well, said Captain Wentworth. Louisa and I must stay in line. You too must stay here, Anne. Forgive me, Mary interrupted. I've actually got a bit of a headache myself. So I will stay here instead of Anne. How quickly Anne's hopes turned to despair. How she had relished the thought of spending three months in the same town as Captain Wentworth. And now she must pass up the opportunity on her sister's account. Would her passivity ever be rewarded, she wondered. Upon leaving Lyme, Anne made haste to Bath to renew her acquaintance with her father, her sister Elizabeth and Mrs Clay yet another widow of little consequence, whose existence was only to further speculation about whom Sir Walter might one day remarry. <laughs> Being of such a pleasant and considered nature that she tired of the many social activities to which Sir Walter and Elizabeth made it their business to be invited, Anne was taking the airs of the Royal Crescent one morning when she once more encountered the strange man she had first encountered in line. My dear cousin, said Sir William, for indeed it was he, Long have I admired you. May I walk with you a while and dare to hope that after a hundred paces you may agree to be my wife. <laughs> Flattered as she was by Sir William's charms, Anne thought she detected a note of insincerity in his manner. Yet politeness restrained her from saying so, and thus she smiled sweetly and walked on a while with her would-be suitor. And while so doing, she happened to notice that their promenade was being observed by none other than Captain Wentworth who had also turned up from nowhere in Bath. <laughs> Later that day, upon returning to their townhouse, Anne was in receipt of a letter. Dear Anne, how it grieved me to see you with your cousin. Ever since I witnessed your skills as a paramedic in Lyme, my trousers have raged with love, and I have longed to pursue my claims on you once more, yet have dared not hope, blah, 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 etc. 
Let me also say that Louisa and I are no longer an item, her affections having now been directed to Captain Benwick, whose own grief at the sudden demise of his previous fiancée has now passed, thanks largely to the excellent advice you gave him on poetry. F.W. <laughs> Such a sudden reversal of fortunes, having occasioned delightful emotions within her, Anne left the house immediately to patronise her old school friend, Mrs. Smith, whose luck was only to be pitied since the death of her husband. If I'm not mistaken, said Anne, I may shortly be wed. To William Elliot, Mrs. Smith gasped. Why, no, Anne replied to Captain Wentworth. Thank heaven, said Mrs. Smith. While I believed your cousin to be your beloved, I felt obliged to stay my tongue. But now I can tell you that William is naught but a bounder. He ruined my husband by encouraging him to gamble and left him to die penniless. He is a man without honour who seeks only to marry you because he fears that Mrs. Clay will marry your father and the arrival of a male heir would prevent him from inheriting the baronetcy. Being a passive and kind soul, Anne did not think to wonder whether Mrs. Smith could not have done a little bit more to stop her husband's gambling herself instead of blaming her cousin. Nor whether it was perhaps a little insulting to apply that Anne's only attractions were as a safeguard to a title. Rather, she rejoiced in her friend's declarations, as it now meant she was finally free to marry Captain Wentworth, and that all loose ends were nearly tied. Perhaps I was wrong to have persuaded you not to have married him earlier, Lady Russell admitted, noting the size of Captain Wentworth's ever-growing fortune. <laughs> My darling, cried Anne, we are together at last. Who would ever have thought it? Whoever indeed? said Captain Wentworth, slipping Mrs. Smith a couple of fibres to pay off her debts. I long for the kind of injury that would send me to Lyme Regis. <laughs> for a weekend, even. Just a weekend. Um, so, uh, oh, let me just grab your books from here. This, as you can see from the cover, is Bride's Head abbreviated, and this is, this is Vertigo, what, from one to the other. So the digested read, Miss Austen can't, you know, be here to bore you politely to death. Um, but what about contemporary writers like P.D. James, because she's fairly tough, um, and you said of her, it is a truth not universally acknowledged that the classic novel is not in want of a sequel. Of death, com <laughs> of death Comes to Pemberley. Have you had any kind of comeback from P.D. James? No, no, she's kept a very dignified silence. silence. I suspect I'm totally beneath her radio. <laughs> <laughs> um, and what about, I, was, I, I, I really enjoyed the recent piece on Alain de Botton, which I have to, I have to read this extract, which yeah. is brilliant, on, on religion for atheists. I'm, do you want to read your own words or shall I read them? No, no, you yeah. please. I, <laughs> I myself was brought up a committed atheist, but even I had a crisis of faithlessness that originated in listening to... Bach's cantatas was developed by exposure to Zen architecture and became overwhelming on reading my own prose. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so has he been scratching at you? Have you, have you been attacked by Alan de Baton? No, actually, no. no, Alan has been loving me up, actually. It's a it was very, very strange. It's the second time, actually. I mean, I've done him a number of times because he's absolutely irresistible. Because, <laughs> um, I mean, he must realise how absurd he is. But, um, you know, he sells shed loads of books, so, you know, it's... 
fair so, game to him. But no, he said, you know, he wrote saying that's fantastic. But the first oh, time... Oh, isn't it? Thank you for berating yeah. me. You know. No, but the first time he got in contact, it was to say thank you, because in a television review, um, I'd done a TV review, and he'd been on the culture show, and he'd been wearing... It was obviously in the winter, and he'd worn a sort of beanie hat on. And I'd said, it's amazing that when he wears the beanie hat, he's not totally hideous. <laughs> and <laughs> and he, was, he was quite pleased with that. Um, <laughs> oh, that's a shame. His, yeah. uh, his self-esteem is down there. Yeah. I, but I, I, I wonder, um, do people kind of... Jojo addressed this earlier on Twitter. She was saying, I'm secretly hoping to be digested um, by John Crace. Do people kind of... You know, are, are they insulted or are they just really flattered that you've that you've given that attention to them? Um, I should, <laughs> I would say it was a mixture. I should think, sort of, in the first month afterwards, I, they probably want to plunge a dagger in me. Um, uh, but I think, sort of, time heals, and seeing that other people getting the knife probably um, <laughs> makes them feel better. Have, have you ever been asked to do a friend? Yes. And have you done so? Yes. Who? Um, quite a few actually, Blake Morris. <laughs> <laughs> Note well, to self, don't yeah, befriend John yeah, Crazy. No. <laughs> <is it? laughs> no respect, I will self, all sorts. Yeah, yeah. no, and yeah. He's, he, indeed, he's, 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 on, he's on the back of this. Yeah. Um, so, no, um, so, so there's never been any kind of great comeback. Have you done the Bible? Or the Talmud, or the Quran? Quran is a no-no, believe me. <laughs> I'm why, not and, going and, there. And why is that? I, <laughs> I just want to live a tiny bit longer. Um, no, but, but the Bible, done, I've done the Bible. Well, you, the New Testament. Find yeah. the, the, new, which, yeah. the whole, all of the New Testaments, or just Matthew or Mark or Luke or John, did you pick on one of them? Or? No, there was... Um, we'll get to religion in some considerable depth, as Mr. Patrick yeah. Gale, but... No, um, it was about seven years ago, the, I think it was um, Canterbury Cathedral came up with the idea of writing a hundred-minute Bible for, um, you know, people's attention. So people are never going to read it. And I just thought, fuck me, that's far too long. Uh, <laughs> so I knocked it down to about five-minute Bible. It's got all the main bits in, you know. <laughs> he lives, he dies, he comes back, you know. Good. Yeah. <laughs> I couldn't find it online. I was really looking for it because my inner kind of Catholic was burning to be angry yeah. about it. <laughs> um, I want to talk about, about Vertigo because really, um, this is, look at the cover. It's actually got, a f I think I thought it was tennis at first until somebody told me that it was football. Um, it's actually a terrible cover. I hate it. Do you? Um, yeah, I don't like it. What would you have rather had? I don't know. I think it's because I hadn't got any ideas myself that we sort of went with that. Are you not very visual? No. Okay. No, I've, I've got the sort of visual sense of that. I... I did, I, I have to say, I was very, uh, quite a few people recommended this book to me, um, and they said, you, it's not really about football, was how they prefaced it, um, because I've only ever played football once, and I was eight, and I scored an own goal, and I was beaten up by everybody, yeah. um, and I've never, I've never played yeah. it since, um, and I think if there were more gay footballers, I would play, <laughs> and I'd be very good. Um, but but I, I wanted I wanted to talk about it because because actually really it's a way of talking about yourself talking the football it's a memoir um, and you say um, about Tottenham Hotspurs which I thought was two separate teams for a while they often play like it <laughs> I I was like why this why is there so many of them anyway but the Spurs is Tottenham yeah um, and they what's the name of the ground again White Hart Lane White Hart Lane. <laughs> 
and it's not arch, far. Their arch rivals are the Arsenal. Yes, the Gunners. Uh, <laughs> um, and the Spurs are the Yeds. Yes. Yeah, we have that. Which is quite controversial. Yeah, no, no, but you do. Yeah, but I, but in the book, I come you around to... You explore the difficult... Is that used by all the people in the, in the ground? Do yeah, they? it is. It is. Astor- I mean, it is one of the... I mean, Spurs traditionally are a very Jewish club, and it's one of the few places that you can go and hear the word yid used as the highest form of praise. You know, to, to, if, if, a, if a player... If there is a chant of yido at some player, it means he has performed wonders. <laughs> And it's somehow quite empowering, and I'm tiny bit Jewish, and I know quite a few other Jewish friends, and we kind of feel the same, though we do feel kind of some... David Badil didn't like it in the book. No, no. But he still gave you a cover quote, so he didn't... Yeah, no, exactly. Um, You say of the Spurs, you say, they are my mirror, I watch them and see me. What do you see? I see a team that very often fails, so I don't have to, really. I mean, they kind of... They, they are everything that I kind of... I mean, they're not... I mean, they're having a fantastic season now, but so often they flatter to deceive. They... Everything about them... I mean, they, they sort of verge on being really good and then sort of let you down. And in a way, that's a sort of kind of metaphor for my entire life, I feel. <laughs> but, you know, it's one sort of minor disappointment after another. <laughs> John is available for hugs afterwards. <laughs> hugs and more. Um, no, but, but, but it is interesting because you, 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 know, you go on to say that you get time off from yourself for 90 minutes. And that's a really powerful thing to say. It's kind of buried in there, but it's a very powerful thing to say. And I, I truly have never watched an entire football match. Um, so I do, not, I do not understand it. And, but reading this was the first time that I ever understood that... And you genuinely have some kind of solace in it, don't you? Oh, yes. I mean, absolutely. It is... You know, these the matches sort of come and go as sort of benchmarks of my week. And, I mean, it's sort of no great secret, but, I mean, I am a neurotic and depressive. I've got serious mental health issues. And, um, you know, football really... You know, it's a, it's a place where I can go and lose myself in th- I can feel at one in 35,000 people it's a very strange experience I can forget about me um, and it's something that I don't do very often I mean I get very little I feel I get very little time off from myself um, I don't drink I don't do drugs or anything like that so all I've got you know I mean I'm sort of with myself the whole time and it's a fucking nightmare um, you know um, I pity anyone else who has to be with me yeah, you choose to be with people like Harry Redknapp, um, and you, you've been in court with him for the last week, two weeks? Two weeks. Two weeks, two Tell weeks us about yeah. Um, well, it's part of a project. My next book is to do a book about Harry. Um, and I find him a sort of... I mean, he is a lovely person. I mean, I find him really... I've mean, sort of got a sort of man crush on him. I, he's a man... He's a, one of the sort of people you're not afraid to... Men aren't afraid to fall in love with. I mean, it obviously helps that Spurs are playing wonderful football under him. But there's something about him that's sort of quite hard to 
get to. Well, he's kind of, I mean, he looks like a Dickensian kind of villain. Yeah. That, all that kind of stuff of standing up in court and going, I can't count, how can I be yeah. a fraud? Yeah. Yeah. I, I, it's yeah. just kind of a sort of madness, yeah. you know? Yeah. Is no. he real? No. Well, that's, I mean, that's sort of what I'm trying to, because I think in a way he's a sort of Zelig-like character. He's someone who everybody reflects, sees in them what they want to see. So for some people, he's the, you know, oh, what you see is what you get, have a laugh, cheeky chappy. For other people, he's sort of dodgy geezer. But when you think, I mean, managing a sort of premiership football team, you're dealing with a bunch of sort of major egos. And you've got to rule them with a kind of iron fist, really. And, I mean, watching him in court, he was sort of kind of having joke and things. I mean, this man was on, you know, going for the performance of his life. Um, I mean, if he'd got been found guilty, he would have gone to prison, career over. I mean, as it is, he'll probably be the next England manager. The stakes couldn't have been higher. And yet, you wouldn't have known. He doesn't give much away. Is that because he doesn't have much to give away? <laughs> I think that's cruel. I think there's a lot. Well, we'll have to wait and find well, I out. That. <laughs> I just couldn't... I just can't believe he's real. Um, but but what's, what, what's going to, towards, towards the end, towards the two thirds of the way through the book, because um, you talk about your relationship um, with, with, with your father, who, like some of the characters in Patrick's book, mm. you, were, you were raised by, I won't say a priest, but it's a vicar, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, he's a vicar. And, and, do you, and you said that you felt kind of distant from things growing up. Do you think that was part of it? Because, you know, you were like religious, you know, or presumed to be religious. Well, I think so. But I mean, I don't know what Patrick's experience was. But mine was that, you know, you were kind of, as a vicar's... I mean, I, was, I wasn't born a vicar's son. My dad was in the Navy. And then when I was seven, he just announced that he was going to be a vicar. And There's a definite trend there. Yeah. <laughs> and I became a vicar's son. And, and he lived in this sort of godforsaken sort of... Oh, we won't use parish. It was a godforsaken Wiltshire village, which sort of... It's Hopefully not entirely God-forsaken, because no. he, I mean, he <laughs> was, was bringing God me. back. It was yeah. for you. And I just felt kind of absolutely trapped there. Um, I didn't really... People sort of expect the vicar's son to be either a complete nerd or a complete fuck-up, and I was both. <laughs> <laughs> um, but where did your love for football come from? Because he didn't. It wasn't from your dad. And I assume that mostly it's dads who indoctrinate. Well, mine tried, but... Yeah, failed. I know it was the 1966 World Cup. I mean, it that's was the one that England won, isn't it? It is. <laughs> yeah, and the only one. Um, is it the only one? Yeah, the only one we've won. Yeah, yeah. or likely okay. to. Um, she's optimistic. Yeah. She's yeah. so far. And <laughs> um, and so they won. They won that one, and that's what made you. It was a kind of a national moment of pride. Well, I think it was just suddenly that there was a lot of football on the telly. My parents had never, I mean, they never watched football on the telly, so I wasn't, you know, it wasn't wall-to-wall -wall football on the telly then. Um, you know, you got, there was one match on match of the day and one game on Sunday afternoon, and that was all you got, and you didn't, I never got to find them, but suddenly there was a football on the telly, and I was hooked. Okay. Um, uh, towards the, I was just going to say, towards the end of the book, you say, I've made it sound like we're a group of typical middle-aged, middle-class men hovering somewhere in the middle of the autistic spectrum. <laughs> but that's not quite fair. I'm actually quite good at emotions. And you have a lot of... Um, what really touched me was the friendships that you have with other men in the book. And that's not something that 
I got at all from you know watching football on telly or ever talking to anybody who liked it. Is that really what? Is it kind of? Is it? It's more of a community than a tribe. It seems to me. Yeah, I mean that's very much the way I feel about it because sort of the bottom line is that the club is a huge business. Redknapp will probably go at the end of the season, and various other players will go. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Anyway, sorry. Let's get it. But more to the point. So I mean, for me, it's about going and meeting and sitting next to the same people week in week out, same seats, continuing the same chats, and travelling to matches with friends, and also with my son. Um, I mean, one of the things about my... I, I sort of was desperate to get him interested in football. And it was sort of touch and go, but he sort of managed it. And it's, it's, been, it's been wonderful because, you know, when we started going, he was sort of more boy than man. And now he's more man than boy, and it's something that we're going to do together. And, I mean, I never really had anything to do with my dad. We didn't do things together. And it is quite nice that sort of he's now 16, he's got girlfriends, he goes out and does stuff, but he still wants to do something with me. And in a way, I find that sort of quite flattering. It's quite sweet, actually. <laughs> I don't do anything with my dad, but fight. Um, Sylvia. We kind, of, we kind of touched on this earlier, but you slightly shocked it. Have you, how, what was the kind of worst response you've had from someone? Anything posted through the letterbox? Or Belle, Mo make, Belle make Mooney got very angry with me, yes. Because she wrote this book about how she got over her split with Jonathan Dimbleby by right petting her dog. And, <laughs> and I have to say that, you know, this is sort of like, I mean gold dust for me <laughs> and she was terribly terribly hurt that I should possibly have picked on her she said why did you pick on me and my dog and I said well it could be something to do with the fact that you are one of the Daily Mail's leading columnists and you've got a following of millions um, she didn't quite get it fair dues poor Belle uh, lady there I can oh it's Vicky oh no it's not it's somebody else nice dress Do you choose the books for, for digestive reasons? Do you ever and do you ever think that um, any of the books are too good? You kind of can't do them. Um, I do choose them by. I mean, occasionally there will be an edict from on high, but you know, ninety five percent of the time I choose them. And the simple answer is no, because I don't have enough time. So once I've started on a book, I haven't got time to sort of just abandon out. So it sort of becomes a matter of concentrating, reading carefully. And I mean, the, the, whole, the whole game of the thing is, I mean, you have to read really, really closely. And to hear the voices, to understand, basically you've got to take the book apart. You've got to try and really work out how it was written, how the author structured it, so that then you can take it to pieces and reassemble it in a more funny way, <laughs> basically. I did also love your Catelyn Moran. That was very good. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> the bit about pubic topiary, especially. <laughs> right, so uh, one more question. Oh, it's Alex. Oh, two more questions. Um, it sounds like you've been very self-deprecating in your own book. And I was wondering if you have any thoughts about that. 
in, in, in Vertigo, you're kind of like, oh, I'm, you know, I've been a bit mental, I've, and, and I'm a, you know, as you said, the nerd and all the rest of it. Have you kind of been getting in there first, having got so many other people so badly? Um, I mean, you could say that. I mean, maybe subconsciously, but I mean, I've also, I also wrote a couple of books mm. that were fairly self-deprecating long before the digested read started. I mean, I, I just find there is no better person to take the piss out of than yourself, <laughs> generally. Um, I find it quite easy. Talk. Yes, yes, that's a very, very interesting question. Could you digest vertigo? I think the simple answer has to be no, because the Guardian tried to get me to do it. <laughs> and um, I just sort of delayed and delayed and delayed until they forgot about it. Um, and then I said, oh, it's just too late now, isn't it? Um, but I, I also thought there would be something a bit sort of media poncy sort of it would have been a bit big guardian up your ass wanky stuff so <laughs> i thought let's just <laughs> jane know, discretion J right now jane austen is doing yeah. it somewhere i think it's yeah. fair to tom the last question <laughs> he supports crystal palace whatever that is <laughs> <laughs> Do you regret any of your digestive reads harshness? No, because it sounds probably a bit weird, but I've forgotten most of them. Uh, <laughs> um, I mean, because it is quite an immediate thing. You kind of, it's a sort of one a week, and, you know, they remain fresh for a bit, and I sometimes sort of go back through, you know, if I'm sort of putting together, I'm, as now, I've, I've been, got to, been asked to put together another collection, and you kind of go through and try to kind of pick out the best ones, and it's sort of quite hard to... I mean, I mean some that yeah. I mean some that you work. I mean, you know, I was very harsh on Liz Jones, for instance. But then you kind of think, yeah. <laughs> Nobody's um, harsher on Liz Jones than Liz Jones. Yeah. Um, so I mean, I don't know. We will leave it there. Please thank Mr. Crace. <laughs> <laughs>